and welcome to Ambit Radio with Soho Radio. I'm Kirsty Allison, the third editor-in-chief of Ambit, and I'm feeling quite overwhelmed to say that because it's a huge, huge honour to now be steering the publication founded by Dr. Martin Bax that first published me in 2007. Back then I saw Ambit as being the most legit literary publication with its feet firmly in the pool of British psychedelia and beatnik jazz and it was kind of heralded to my attention with the squiggles of Steadman and the pop hoarding of Palozzi. I saw Amber as serious and unpretentious so I'd sent short fiction in anonymously after a career of sorts DJing and working as a journalist and at the launch party It was also the first time I'd read publicly really badly. So, yeah, apologies about that. Yet, you know, during that time, Ambit gave me a great sense of family and I was meeting people who had worked with the greats and it seemed like a direct line to people I admired and it allowed me to break into the fortifications of a literary castle something. Now, that seems a lot easier because we can put our own words out so easily with digital media but I don't think that's gonna make it any less valid being published by Ambit and part of that is this incredible legacy that it's an honor to continue to serve so today we're hearing from Kim Adonizio about the gender politics of getting wasted what it's like to be an author of that and how it leaves us in the peripheries as women writers. Kim is the judge of this year's annual Ambit Poetry Competition and she's the author of eight poetry collections, two novels, two short story collections and two books on writing poetry. One's called The Poet's Companion with Dorian Lau and the other is called Ordinary Genius. So if you want some direction, support someone who's really, really like a great, great writer, and we'll hear her reading shortly. Kim has also received fellowships from the NEA and the Guggenheim Foundation, the Pushcart Prizes in both poetry and the essay, and her work has been widely translated and anthologized her book tell me was a national book award finalist in the great us of a and her new poetry collection now we're getting somewhere is out from ww norton she lives in oakland california where we're dialing into and kim adonizio came on as poetry judge for this year's annual ambit competition recommended by Bryony Bax as someone who would drink a cocktail at 11am to celebrate a literary festival so she seemed like someone I may be interested to read. Hi Christy. Hello nice to meet you. You too how are you doing? I'm great thank you. Where are you? Are you in San Francisco? I'm in Oakland. Oh, nice. In in my closet, a.k.a. my studio. Great. Yeah, very nice. I'm just having tea. Very nice. In honor of the UK. 
and your poem. I have coffee on the go actually right now. So cool. I've really enjoyed it. So anyway, hello. This is the Ambit podcast for Soho Radio. I am really, truly excited to be speaking to Kim Adonizio. Am I saying it right? Kim? Adonizio. Itzio. Oh, it's got the Italian. Yeah. Nizio. Nizio. Adonizio. Adonizio. It helps to sweep your arm like an Italian, you know. Adonizio. Adonizio. Okay, so welcome, Kim Adonizio, to Ambit Radio. We share this with Soho Radio, who kindly broadcast out on the Culture Station and in New York City at 1800 GMT on the 21st of September 2021. So, yeah, welcome, listeners, and to those of you who are listening afterwards. So today we've got Kim Madanizio in the studio live from Oakland and we're speaking about her job as a judge for Ambit's annual competition. Our competition with Ambit, it started many many years ago and it's most infamous for the drugs competition of 1968 when the Arts Council let go of funding because Martin Bax was asking for poetry and art written on drugs. So that was the, the insight that I got and the kind of legacy that I was aware of with Ambit and this kind of psychedelic jazz kind of interest really. And that was, and the artwork of the time as well. So that was kind of the legacy of Ambit that I was aware of but they actually awarded that poem to Anne Quinn who wrote it on the pill so yeah interesting right. <laughs> really yeah <laughs> yeah but I mean Dr Martin Bax he was publishing his own papers his own books as a doctor to begin with which is how he knew Lavin and Press who still print the magazine and he sort of began his own in 1959. So he'd been running the magazine for a while before they started that that competition, but the competition's been running every year since. So it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a phenomenal thing to be awarded the winning prize of. So we have a huge amount of entries and it's it's basically it's even less likely that you'll win the competition than you might get published if you send in an unsolicited submission when our submission windows are open uh, it's about one percent chance of getting through to the shortlist so you read a low didn't you i did yeah i i can't even remember how many but i spent many days re reading the poems for the competition yeah and how do you do it? I mean, you must have done this before. How do you trust yourself to make the right choices? Is there anything kind of, do you do a rubric for it or is it instinctive? Or? Well, I, I think I'm always looking to say yes and I'm always looking to say no. <laughs> you know, so the sort of the most, the, the ones that stand out the most that are immediately engaging to me or the ones that are immediately, oh, no way. <laughs> you know, so I sort of have a yes, no, maybe 
situation and anything that that is a maybe basically anything I think maybe has some promise that I want to go back and reread is is a maybe and then it either falls into the no or the yes category so that's kind of how I I divided it up reading over several days and just um you know doing a, an initial read um going back over everything and really beginning to read seriously and say okay you know, and sometimes I'll even go back over the nose and say, was I too hasty? Did I make a mistake? Did I miss something? Um, yeah. And of course it all, you know, personal taste always comes into it and different judges are going to be attracted to different things. So, you know, if I'm judging people get my biases, but I also sort of try to work against them in some ways. I say, okay, am I picking this just because of X that I happen to like? Or am I really picking it on its own merits and what it's trying to do to be a successful piece of writing? And you read blind as well. You didn't know the names. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Didn't I didn't yeah. even know if it was a, a, a man, woman or them. And how do you find that as a technique? I mean, we're we're considering that in-house at the moment with how, how we do select stuff and whether or not context, I mean, particularly with poetry, is context important for, for what we're reading? I kind of like to engage with the poem on the page because the, the writer can't be there to explain it or justify it or solve any mysteries in it, you know? And I like to just engage with the writing just the way I would. Well, that's not true when I think about, you know, dead writers that I love. I, sometimes I know a bit about them as well and that probably does play into my reading of them. But, but I wanna have an encounter with the poem, with the person who is on the page, who's not always the person in, in real life, but, but who, whatever that voice is on the page, that's what I want to hear speaking to me. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, it's a mystical thing, isn't it? With many kind of portrayals of writers, particularly with these, there's quite a few who write with a pseudonym. And whether that does allow you as a performer to kind of create an alternative personality. But it's also dissociative anyway, a lot of writing, I think. So it's... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, master. I mean, you're brilliant at that. I've so I'd be honest with our listeners. I I hadn't really heard of Kim as an and <laughs> until until you were invited by Bryony Bax, who was editing, and she loves you. And she was like, "We should get Kim to. We should get Kim in to to do it." She's lived in. America so I don't know if that was kind of where she became aware of you but I know she'd seen you perform at the Cheltenham Literary Festival and I was quite overwhelmed by kind of the star the the, the brilliancy of what you've of what you've written so I started off reading your poetry and obviously I've kind of found stuff online I've listened to you and kind of done all of that but and you came to us as a poet, but what I have really, really, really loved is the Bukowski and a sundress memoir. I mean, I've just, I, I, it's, it's kind of cut into a vein of female writing that I haven't really read enough of. And I think what you've done in it is brilliant. I just think it's so, so honest and so down in the gutter 
rare that women get allowed to write with that truth and you're clever and it's just this idea that you can layer deep intellect with the crass reality of being a woman it's brilliant really really thank you this is my hit single penis blues written during the great penis famine i miss the penis i feel like a word with no vowels no one wants to pronounce me woke up this morning looked around for my penis j'ai été dévasté le zizi je ne pouvais pas le trouver I would like to order a penis, please, with dressing on the side. Also, this soup could use a dash of penis. Senor Platano, donde estas? Mr. Defile me, where you at? There's something lacking in the decor, an artfully placed penis. There used to be one right over there, reading the paper, using a drill gun, leaving socks on the floor. Now there's a hole in my heart, penis-sized. Oh, prostate baby, you up and gone. Those old seminal vesicles done rambled on. Corpus cavernosum, mm-hmm. A penis has taken flight, probably gonna fly all night. There's a flock of them headed south. Their cries recede over the distant car dealerships over the darkened pleather interiors and the stoned janitor slopping his mop in a bucket of dirty water. Thank you. Well, we're not allowed in a lot of places, which is why we have to do it anyway, you know, or try to. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you've you've kind of, so I thought we'd start with your story and, I mean, how you started writing, your father encouraging you on his deathbed and your mother's influence on you. I mean, she was well known as a tennis player. Yeah, she won Wimbledon, as a matter of fact, for all your UK listeners and tennis fans. Yeah, yeah, she was a she was a quite a champion in her day. So. That was an example of excellence and competition. And, you know, she didn't really understand what I was up to when I started writing poetry. But, um, you know, she she was always proud of me and became prouder when she saw that it actually mattered to other people, which was something that she didn't understand at all. She would say, Kimmy, you're a good writer. Why don't you write a romance novel they sell? (laughs) Which, you know, she was she wanted me to survive economically and here I was going off to be a poet and she she just thought that was I think both I she just thought it was kind of crazy you know like what is my daughter doing and couldn't really fathom it because it wasn't in her world you know that world of books and letters and culture in that way not that she was uncultured by any means but her world was sports and so that was sort of the family thing was a lot of sports 24 seven. And I always was the one that had my nose in a book. So that was that was strange to everyone in my family, even though my mother loved to read and loved words and, you know. And did you end up with an element of competition within that, do you think? 
Well, I don't know. I think I just, um, I remember somewhere along the line, maybe it was in grad school, um, which I didn't get to till my 30s, but, um, you know, published my first book at 40. And I I remember somebody saying, well, you know, only 1% of writers really make any money. And my thought was, oh, I guess I've got to be the 1%. (laughs) And that was my mindset was like, oh, well, that's going to be hard, but this is what I want to do with my life. So I guess I'm going to have to figure out a way to make that happen. I don't think I'm near the top 1% of earners in writing, you know, um, in terms of the, the really best-selling people, but I have managed to make a, make a living at it and, and make my life in, in poetry and in writing, which has been amazing and lucky. Mm, but fortunate and I think you know you've clearly worked at it and made your own fortune so but I mean what who did you so you studied you went to you did go to university mm-hmm, I did read, yeah read English I um my undergrad was not in English but um then when I got struck by poetry which was about I was about 27 28 and just finishing up a BA took me a few times because I dropped out a couple of times. And eventually I went back to school and got a BA. And and that's when I really all of a sudden got struck by the poetry gods and um, and my whole life sort of changed based on that. And I decided I had to start writing and really learn what I was doing. And um, that's when I started to go to grad school. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, so you had some amazing teachers, some good teachers, some influential people around you? Or? I I had a, a couple of good teachers. I think, um, yeah, I learned a lot about the craft. I made some good friendships and started a literary journal and a workshop and, and with a group of uh, fellow students, fellow poets, and we did a lot of political organizing and a lot of organizing around, um, you know, poetry events for causes and poetry readings and, you know, just sort of the way you do when you're starting out and you're trying to dive into this world. And one great way to do it is to make your own thing and sort of, you know, so we started this literary journal and started a reading series and did a lot of things that sort of um, helped us all to begin to connect with each other and with the larger poetry world. And did you do that in San Francisco? Was that in New York? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, San yeah. Francisco. That must have been a lot of fun and quite supported and, and expected within that culture as well, no? It was, yeah. It was a real, I mean, I was a baby poet here, you know, just starting out and it was really welcoming. There were a slew of readings every night and you could, you could become a poet here. It, it felt, San Francisco felt like a place where that was possible to call yourself an artist and make your way as an artist. Mm. Not so much where I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, <laughs> to is a suburb of Washington, DC. And um, yeah, that that was not a place when I was growing up that, that that would be seen as a very viable way to survive. But in San Francisco, when I was first here, before the dot-commers got here, um, it was very much a, a a space of you know it had that just creative zeitgeist everywhere and you just really felt it when you were living here it's changed enormously to its detriment so it's I think it's lost its soul but 
I still have good friends who live there and I know there's another San Francisco, but not the way it used to be. And do you see, I mean, you travel a lot and you teach and you do workshops. You've written a couple of books, haven't you, on kind of the art of poetry and mm-hmm. how, to, how to create. And I mean, do you see culture changing and do you see subculture going online? Do you see it kind of happening in a different way now, particularly through COVID and everything we've been through in the last couple of years? Yeah, I think poetry is doing really well, actually. You know, um, Zoom readings, virtual readings are all over still. And there's just a really lively, vibrant community of people who are interested in reading and writing poetry. Um, Often it's the writers of poetry who are interested in reading it. Um, But, you know, it's nice when a non-poet comes along and suddenly finds out the poetry has something to offer them you know, beyond the wedding poem or the funeral poem, which is the usual times that people reach for it. Um, But yeah, you know, people can be pleasantly surprised if they encounter it in an odd place and go, oh, I thought I didn't like poetry. And they'd never really experienced it or experienced the right poem for them. So um, I think it's doing really well. There's a lot of youth stuff going on. There's a lot of, you know, the slam competitions when they came along, they introduced a whole generation to spoken word. And that's very much a, a branch of, of poetry that's going very strong. So. And how do you think, I mean, do you, do you distinguish in different types? Do you look at some things? And I mean, for me, because I'm, you know, I've grown up going to poetry gigs, so I'm reading poetry, but I kind of do think of poetry as being something that's spoken. And it's definitely, you know, the rhythm and the pentameter and whatever, I do consider it to be something that works spoken as much as on the page. And And I think that's a product of my culture rather than something being totally paper you know, pe- like poet poems on the paper page, whatever it's called. But yeah, I mean, I'm kind of quite, you know, my music has been part of my history. So, and the, and the sort of poets that do rock and roll gigs are kind of intertwined with my understanding of what poetry is. So I guess it it must be a little similar to the San Francisco thing of, of, of the events being so, and the happenings being so much part of the culture. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, it, you know, it started out as an oral art before anything was written down. So it's rooted in the oral tradition. And I feel like it's sort of come back to that in a lot of ways. Uh, but I also think that poetry is sort of vast and wide and there are a lot of different kinds of poetry. And it's great when you have someone who's a brilliant performer and a brilliant writer, and that comes together. They don't always come together. Sometimes a brilliant writer is not a good performer, and it's much better to just encounter their work on the page where it's a just a very private interaction between you and the writer. And it can be a very quiet poem, and it doesn't belong amplified with music, you know? with a lot of loud music. So there there are just, there's a whole range, I think, you know, or a whole spectrum of what's possible in poems. And it's not one thing. It's not only 
uh, spoken word and it's not only on the page and it's not only academic writers and it's not only street poets and you know they're just so language poets there's so many different kinds of poetry right now um and I, I think that's great. You know, I just think that means it's a big landscape and you can kind of wander through it. Cowboy poetry, you know, there's like, it's it's really big and people find and gravitate to the things that they respond to. And, you know, that's a beautiful thing. It's like music. Why should music be one thing? You've mm -hmm. got classical aficionados and people that are crazy about opera and then there's, you know, rap and hip hop and country and rock and R&B and, you know, I love the blues. And there are just so many kinds of music and, um, you know, you don't have to love it all, but we all tend to find things that really speak to us. Guitar strings. <laughs> said excellent uh, would you like to read some of your own so that we can just hear some of you yeah I'd be happy to um would you like me to read the one that Ambit is publishing we'd love you to the, do that yes okay I, I wrote it for the Cheltenham festival when I was going to appear there and I really wanted to write something 
for England, you know, something really specific that I could read at that event. So I came up with Ode to England. And this is, I know, the, the poem that's going to be in ambit. I love your cheeky TV bakers baking biscuits, sheep and dragons and lurid lemon tartlets, drizzle cakes and sausage plates. I love your scandal docudramas and how the violence of your crime shows occurs mostly off camera between cups of tea and the relentless parsing of personal relationships. While here in America, the trope of the car chase has been replaced by the trope of exploding heads. I like having a lion and watching on screen your royal families imploding in their castles and palaces, your late blooming lovers from different social classes arguing in pubs. Brilliant are your pubs and publicans, your Thames and Tyne, your river ooze that tried and failed to scour Virginia Woolf's voices from her head. If anybody could have saved me, it would have been you, she wrote to Leonard in heartbreaking conditionals. Even now, when I think of her, I want someone to rescue her and offer to put on the kettle while she takes off those wet things. You gave us so many things, England, macadam and matches, the flask and the light bulb, even before Edison. You gave Europe the Halifax gibbet 500 years before the guillotine. Maybe I shouldn't thank you for that. You gave us the gentleman's cummerbund, cummerbund, useful for catching crumbs, slimming to the waist, although it originated in your military when you were mucking about in India where you never belonged. I probably shouldn't bring that up either. But I love the sound of cummerbund, that elegant dactyl. It reminds me of other dactyls. Oh, Benedict, Cumberbatch, half a league, half a league, half a league onward. And there are your soldiers again, doing and dying for someone's blunder. And there are the unmarked graves of the Kikuyu in Kenya. Oh, your flawed Britannia, the history of your rule, as cruel as every other country. You're as terrible as America and as beautiful. Our connection is historical and biological, too. 17% of me is you. I can follow my finger back up the ancestral line to Edward I, who was a shit to the Scots. Bloody hell, I wanted a purer praise song, but this is all I've got. Meet me at the Mayflower pub by the river in Rotherhithe. A toast to all our frailty and the mess we make of everything eventually. But tonight, we'll raise a pint and exit singing loudly to the cobblestone street. And later, we'll drink endless cups of tea. <laughs> Wonderful. Very good stuff. What I write about it is just how unpretentious it is and how every day your language is, but yet you can kind of entwine that into being something that's that's kind of awe-inspiring I think it's great I really like your writing I'm so glad to have so glad to have discovered you so yeah tell us what you think makes great writing well I think the writing that I'm drawn to it's it's kind of changed over the years I really started out admiring a sort of very plain style and wrote a lot that way and then I felt really limited by that and started to feel limited by narrative and wanting to get 
more. And so I got more interested in writers who were playing with language in different ways and doing things that were more lyrical than narrative. So that rather than telling a this happened and this happened next kind of story, were thinking about things and writing pieces that pulled in like magpies or magnets pulling in filings from all different directions in order to serve some idea or some concept and using story for that in the moments that it was there. So that's just the way my sort of trajectory went and where I am now. And who knows, that could change at any time. But right now, that's what really interests me are, are writers who are really sort of wildly metaphorical and and just able to include a lot of the world and a lot of different tonalities in one piece. I think that's an aspect that just appeals to me. And surprise, just the delight of being surprised by a turn of phrase means a lot to me. Yeah, I mean, in this collection, and now we're getting somewhere, you definitely do that and you slam together different words that you might not necessarily expect to follow one another for something like another layer, really, and another visual aspect or you get a different image from it being non-plain I find quite a lot of writers in poetry do that it's quite a sort of surreal way of working really where you're sort of putting two slamming two concepts together really to create something new but right. I, I like the I like your balance with it and the way that you do it so that it's not something that you overdo it'll just come in occasionally and and I think that's why I like the way you do it it's not like it's not check me out I'm a really amazing writer all the time there's like you can just you can read through it and yeah I mean there you know there are writers who are are so pyrotechnical you know and it's really impressive but it it starts to feel a little too much like you know, you have to balance it. You have to figure out a way to sort of have those fireworks, but not constantly keep it at that level. I think that's that's hard to do when it gets, it can even be tedious sometimes, you know, like here comes another slam dunk metaphor, but you've totally lost the plot of whatever is going on in the poem. And it's, you know, that little local surprise begins to take over the entire poem. Yeah. So there's there's definitely a balance there. Yeah, and I think you but I think you're really, really great at doing that. I think you say it well in your judges report too, which we'll publish in this uh in this next edition that we're putting together now that will be out at the end of October, early November, when we'll do a a wonderful awards ceremony with massive checks <laughs> to people. <laughs> great king size checks. So yeah, we'll do those in London and hopefully in other places that aren't London too and kind of get some parties going up and down the country. So and countries. So yeah, I'm looking forward to doing that and uh, kind of getting more people more people reading and just open it all out a bit really that's kind of what I'm excited to do here do you edit anything now I just teach workshops basically and that includes you know sometimes a lot of editing I mean you know in a workshop we're we're offering ideas and we're also offering edits you know like oh here's how you could tighten this line 
And here's how I, you know, here's how I might rewrite your line to, to show you some ways to tighten it, you know. So there's definitely editing going on when we're workshopping poems because we're really focused on the craft and talking about what's working and what's not and what's the overall poem doing or trying to do. And, you know, so that's that's really where it goes. But I don't do I used to do one on one consultations and I I stopped doing those um, in favor of I'm actually just doing Zoom teaching now. Uh, which I pivoted to at the beginning of COVID. And it's been great. I, I love it because I get to work with people all over the world. And, and we just, you know, it's almost now like being around a table or in my living room, not as good, but the closest thing to it because you can still see people and have conversations about the work, which is really great. I need to have to commute. Yeah. Yeah, and no commute. You get yeah. roll out of bed in your pajamas and turn on your computer. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of your stuff is really low down and dirty. I mean, it just feels like the uh the my dreams out in the street, which is a kind of love story of homelessness, really. Um it's is that your own experience? No, it's a novel. Yeah, but I mean, you write so well about the filth, you know, you really do. You're so the good filth. at it. Yeah, <laughs> you're brilliant at it. And that's what, that's what I like about it. It's, uh, well, yeah, my dreams out in the street. Um, I wrote a book of poems first called Jimmy and Rita. It is a narrative. It's sort of a novel in verse. That was my second book was Jimmy and Rita. And I was obsessed with those characters and sort of like each each page is a poem or prose poem that's almost like a mini chapter. And when I finished that, I found I wasn't finished with the characters and I had to write a novel to actually try to get them to a better place. So I took those characters and basically imported them in their story into writing a novel. Yeah. And, and again, it's like you're a magpie, you know, you're pulling from everywhere. So there are some of my experiences in that novel. There are stories people told me and things I learned from friends and things I made up in my head. So it's like any novel, you know, it's a work of imagination and there may be some truths in there, but you're not, you're never going to know what they are or which things might be true and which might not be. Uh, I've never been homeless, but I did have a homeless guy who had read my book somewhere, email me and say, we've been passing this around and uh, we wanna know, he and his friends, we wanna know, cause we, we feel like you really got it right. And we wanna know whether you were homeless. And I, I was so flattered by that because I haven't been, but I did do some volunteer work at a shelter and I had, had some encounters, let's say, with street life and street people. And um, I had a friend who was a criminal investigator who used to tell me stories all the time. That's what the book is dedicated to. And so he told me a lot of stories, you know, so I was just really gratified that I had gotten that piece of it right. And, and that people who had been in that life felt like there was something authentic in what I was doing you know, that that means everything to a writer. Yeah, entirely, yeah. You were first published when you were 40. Mm -hmm. my, a, first, yeah. my first book of poems, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's quite late, isn't it? Why do you think, yeah, how did it take that long to 
to do it I mean it's the same for me right but I'm just mm-hmm. I'm just uh yeah I mean uh, yeah I don't think I was ready personally to um to have expunged it until then but yeah yeah well 40 seems quite young to me now <laughs> I think mean, really that's I thought at the time it was late but you know you're ready when you're ready and the work is ready when it's ready so um yeah I mean I felt very you know I was a few years out of grad school by the time that happened and and I had thought oh you know I getting out of grad school, you know, you maybe have the feeling that like you're ready to take the literary world by storm or you're hoping to, or you're knocking at those doors and it actually takes a lot of knocking and a lot of time, at least it did in my case, and a lot, a whole lot of revision and struggle to, um, to create a first book that finally, finally an editor said yes, after it had been going around for about three years in various iterations. So, yeah, it was it was a struggle for sure. And how much of that do you think was to being a woman? I don't think I thought about it then or that it had a lot of bearing on whether or not my book was taken. Honestly, I think since then I've gotten a lot of static in various ways that is misogynistic, but not at the not at the time. I mean, my first book, you know, I just. I just felt like I was a, a poet trying to, or trying to become a poet and trying to become a poet with a book and real, working really hard on those poems. But I never had a sense of, oh, my work is going to be seen differently because I'm a woman writing it, or I didn't have those feelings at all at the time. But mm. since then, I certainly have. <laughs> Such as what? Well, um, critics, often male critics, uh, you know, uh, the what you're calling the filth. Uh, just honesty about being a woman or or um, claiming sexuality in any way for a woman is hard, um, I think, still. And so, um, you know, some male critics, not not all, certainly, and it's not about bashing any men, but some male critics have had a hard time with that and have seen it in a very different light than I saw my work or that other, say, women saw my work. Um, and, you know, now recently it's gotten ageist because I'm older and I had one critic write about how I shouldn't be writing about sex and desire and that a woman after a certain age is not as attractive. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Really? Uh, you know, so that goes on. And, uh, you know, m- men seem to feel very ready. Some men, as Rebecca Solnit says, some men. Uh, are very ready to, you know, to judge us on our looks and on everything else that they think we should be doing or how we should be looking or how we should be feeling or thinking or acting. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. You don't get to, you don't get to do that, you know, unless maybe if you're the Taliban. Um, And I feel for those women, for sure, especially after having some freedoms, you know, but in the West, come on you know, just leave me the fuck alone and I'm going to write what I'm going to write and I'm going to say what I need to say. And I, I'm really gratified again, you know, when when young women write me, because a lot of young women write me and say, oh, I didn't know I could say that or you've given me courage to write my story or, and again, that's just the, that's just the most amazing thing. I mean, that's why you write is to say something to someone and have someone else say, yes, I needed to hear that. 
So that's been, that's been great. And it's definitely been a, and this book, now we're getting somewhere. The latest one is very much a book for, I think, especially for girls and young women who are struggling with all the things that we struggle with, including self-esteem issues and body issues and self-destructive um, behavior. And I have, I have been there. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to write about that as well. That's what I engaged with was that honesty, really, of what you call claiming your sexuality. I think you do that really, really well. There aren't that many female writers that I can think of that do that. Maybe I'm ill-read and just bombarded with a lot of men writing, but uh, yeah, I've not found a huge number of women that I kind of, that I've really sort of thought, oh, wow, that's, yeah, that's really refreshing to read. So yeah, I found it super useful and yeah, refreshing really. So, so, I mean, really, you know, to get my novel published, it's just taken so long. And I think it's because it's really brutal. So mm -hmm. it's, it's honest and brutal and women don't normally write like that. And you know the system of the editors and who's editing and all of that is is quite hard to sort of move move through really yeah know. yeah that sort of idea that literature is supposed to be nice and your character is supposed to be nice and likable and all of that yeah yeah much dominates the yeah. sort of the the mainstream industry yeah entirely so how do you fit I mean you've been published by I mean this is Simon and Schuster with your Penguin uh Norton have done your recent poetry book but I mean you've managed to kind of transcend all of that pretty well you know you've done you've done really great I mean have you do you feel you have to justify yourself harder as a as a woman to sort of earn your earn your place through what you're writing I, yeah, I think I think you do. I think you really have to just put yourself out there. And, you know, I'm not someone who's a big commercial success. You know, I don't have huge, I don't get huge royalty checks or, you know, so I'm not in, I'm not in that level of writers that, you know, I, I always laugh because every year for some reason the Garrison Keeler, the writer's almanac, program on the radio they just seem to love my ass and they um you know they always on my birthday always announce that it's my birthday and read a poem of mine which if you've never had a poem read by Garrison Keillor it's a very strange experience he has such an odd voice and they mentioned me in the same breath with you know today is the birthday of Kim Adonizio and J.K. Rowling as if you know as if oh yes my sister J.K. Rowling who you know is has sold a bazillion copies and um you know it I'm in a different world but it's a it's to me it's a very valuable world and you know I think a lot of committing to being a poet is you probably have a very definition different definition of success or being a literary being a really literary writer you have a different definition of success than mainstream you know yeah. although there are some wonderful mainstream literary writers you know I mean I love Dennis Johnson I love George Saunders I there's you know there's a, a bunch of writers I could name that are both 
literary and and highly successful at that level, but it rarely happens for a poet. Usually when it happens for a poet, there's something else going on as well that that makes poetry for a moment be something that people are interested in reading. And then it, you know, it it flares up and then it goes back down to where it belongs, I think, is sort of this underground river. Poetry is always the new rock and roll, isn't it? And then it kind of fades out again. So, yeah. So, I mean, the thing about commercial writers, I mean, in music culture, it's only what you label as being underground that is underground, but that just doesn't seem to quite transcend over into what makes commercial success, really. And I struggle for sure with, with trying to comprehend that, really, of just, but it's like democracy, you know, you end up just with a middle ground, I guess, um, and the peripheries just get knocked knocked to the side but I mean I don't think what you're writing is peripheral I mean that's the whole you know that to me would be you know if Bukowski can sell however much yeah that, that's true he's still going strong yeah 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 so yeah that's I get wound up by by that really so do you drink hard to stay in the room <laughs> do I no. <laughs> no I mean I in the past I certainly you know downed a few glasses yeah um and I still do from time to time but not um no and definitely not I'm you know I'm not trying to join any boys club I'm not interested you know here we're gonna hear from some amazing commended poets that Kim found from the many, many submissions she's been kind enough to read. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Morosky. I am one of the commended poets for the annual Ambit Competition 2021. This poem is called Too Small. Too Small. The old god steps down from his niche, ties his knapsack to a stick, and slowly walks away. No birds circle his head. The woman at her window looks down at him. He tries to change her mind with cartwheels in the dust, to say things owl-wise and prescient. She doesn't fall for this. The light she is made of sows a star, brilliant as he is violent, to the sky. Now it's on her sleeve. Now it's a heart breaking apart in quantum leaps, snowing light in waves to wrestle with like Jacob. Hello, my name's Mark McGuinness. I'm one of the commended poets for the annual AMBIT competition, 2021. This is Chrysalis. The hard part isn't spinning my own shroud to cover me from head to toes to toes, then waiting for my dozen eyes to cloud, my segments to collapse 
like dominoes. Yet neither is it fetid dissolution, my liquidized flesh, my petrifying shell, or the agonizing slow reconstitution from serpent into angel via gel. The hard part isn't being born again inside a wrapper like a folded kite, unfolding and assembling struts and stems, or hoisting the whole contraption into flight. The hardest part is where it all begins, relinquishing legs for fantasies of wings. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Senecluff and I'm one of the commended poets in the annual Ambit International Competition 2021. Hanging with Rexy. As a teen, Rexy taught me to walk on black ice in white stilettos, a mile and a half home from the checkers. Keep your back straight and relaxed, half a calorie a step. Rexy said the clink, clink of my heels sounded like a caviar spoon against glass. She had an ear for Ovchunikov and an eye for America in neon. All that steel, all those angles, 19-year-old Kate Moss on Broadway, posing like a god. Those nights Rexy held me until I was warm. You've got to commit, she whispered. I clipped in to the pedals on the bike Rexy lent me and cycled against the wind. On the days when I couldn't get out of bed, Rexy pressed hot stones into the hollows beneath my shoulders and ribcage. She traced my lips with her finger and told me I was a la mode. By dusk, a handful of Rexy's plastic-coated pills jeweled the depths of my stomach. How they softened like beautiful girls locked in a basement. Hello, my name is Mary Mulholland. I'm one of the commended poets for the annual Ambit Competition 2021. This is my poem, Growing a Face. When I was young, I'd watch old people and count how long they'd pause before they'd answer my questions. Their skin fell in folds as they spoke, eyes watery, marked in red pen. I'd wonder how they grew so bent, like a yoga stretch to the ground. Why they sat so much, had they lost the will to run? Why they had windows that never opened, what they still enjoyed? Once I'd asked Great Aunt Maud how the old got the face they ended up with, she laughed. Once workmen whistled to call to me, cheer up, love might never happen. Thank you. Hello, my name is Alex Willard. I'm one of the commended poets for the annual Ambit competition 2021. This is Poema. Let me not be revealed. Let me smile like a girl unclasping her pra after another day. Let it happen before what can only understand. Our friendship is cobweb after negative temperatures. We dream of reaching beyond our body, 
stretch our arms a little too far, take hold of the bow with two fingertips and watch the ribbon unravel while our guest takes her place at the table, settles her thumb on her lower lip and kneads a morsel of bread in her palm, feasts on three beginnings. She becomes the words thank and hope set in her ways without the sentimental eye who leaves to see the cornflower growing by the window in the break on the wall needing to go on and say free and liberty in one short breath we want to be revealed we want to see the production of change feel the pleasure of stretching a hand towards sunlight of holding steady this being alive and its reliance on our becoming something else hi my name is stephanie powell and i'm one of the commended poets in the annual ambit competition 2021 and this is my poem girlhood girlhood a blushing longing to be touched down a list of body parts pink dipped nipple budding against a palm of high school boys by the station car park under street lights in the blue dusk kisses arrowed to the back of the throat walking home the promise of full-bodied teenage sex hung across the houses and no through roads like curtains drawn tight over windows, I longed to lift the fabric like school shirts over heads and draw figure eights on the glass as though it were backskin. I dreamed of hand-smooth bed sheets, a strand of hair caught in a buttonhole, a school sock flying half-mast down a shin. The cicadas sang in a tuneless racket as I ripened unsure into girlhood. Thank you. Hello, this is Kit Ingram. I am one of the commended poets for the annual Ambit Competition 2021. This is That Kiss in Padua. Spilt milk frothing over the garden path, a twitching wasp in the gap between two stones. Who knows? We can meet again on the cobbles of a piazza in the glow of an alfresco dawn. You'll be buzzing about Gregor Samza or the Contest of Athena, and I'll, aha, and when you stunned me with your sudden strip down to a pair of pink nipples. I might have queer boy giggled in the shock, but I stepped our shadows together and over your shoulder watched us stretch through the sun, heads melting into a sting of lips. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Morosky. I am one of the commended poets for the annual Ambit Competition 2021. This poem is called Coro's Bert. Coro's Bert. She is thinking how tired she is, sitting for hours like a stone. She is thinking of the fuss he makes to catch her in the light. 
She is thinking of his hands arranging her hands, the fall of her veil. She is thinking, when will his dripping brushes be done with her? She is thinking how long it's been since she last ate. She is thinking she would like to keep this lovely dress from Italy. She is thinking what a lonely thing it is to be alone with him. She is thinking how her lips conspire to be his Mona Lisa. She is thinking he should keep the painting always in his house. Hello, I'm Anne Bailey. I'm one of the commended poets from the Ambit 2021 annual competition. My poem's called What the River Did Next. It's written in the shape of flowing water. What the river did next. It joined a fitness club it exercised in the park with the mothers, learnt about feeding routines, sleep problems, how to get your child into a good school. Next, it seeped into a church and was surprised to find it knew most of the hymns but could not fathom worship. So it gave up and joined the army where strength was a good thing. Not just strength, but confidence. It had both, but realised that a lot of the time it felt cold, which was one of those things it was trying to get away from. It ended up in the museum, which seemed to be a place of lasting significance. It worried that it might wreck everything, but knew it was holding valuable information, not just the dates and times of floods, numbers of drownings, locations of lost cities, but the whispered promises of lovers on its bridges, on its banks, the physics of the mesmerisation of water, the collected works of fish. The river deposited all these secrets in glass cases and labelled them. After this, it could have stopped to think, but it was impossible to interrupt its own flow. It ran down the street picking things up as it went. Half-hearted sonnet. He'd left his belt. She followed him and threw it in the street. Wine, kisses, snake. End of their story. Begin again. Understand what happened. Despite that battered feeling, it will have been worth it better to have, etc. Not to have been born at all, Schopenhauer, but soft and her tears. So this is Kirsty Alice Radio. You're listening to us live on Soho Radio. on your favourite podcast delivery system sometime there is always and to be frank I'm now horrified that the world had not allowed me to know Kim Adonitio sooner as I've 
ended up adding her to a very small shelf of contemporary female authors I admire who write about the filth of being a woman with a sailor's aplomb and a pen of silk, subtle, not boisterous in any form, with all the shades a sun could throw. I'm particularly in love with her memoir, Bukowski in a Sundress, and it was named after the cuss that was thrown at her by a male judge who failed to allow her to win a competition. And with publishing, it's always hard finding writers I want to read. And that's what this whole journey over the coming issues of Ambit will do its best to rectify. I want to read and publish the best work we can. And this will only work with quality submissions, so please 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 don't hesitate to sign up to updates where we'll find you with our amazing email system to let us you know when the submission windows are open we don't charge very much we operate as a charity so we do try to keep it free for those who can afford nothing and affordable to those who can maybe support us a little bit more. But the good thing about Ambit is the processes for finding excellent voices that go on to be laureates, Nobels, and household names are all well in place. And I'm building up a team of people I trust to help me with this process. So in next month's podcast, we'll hear from the winning poets and from the winning artists and the short story winners, judged by Michael Salou. He's uh, going to have his work published in the next pop edition of Ambit too so that's going to be great he works a lot with sort of data and identity and kind of fractal type contemporary glitchy kind of writing and art crossing over so you can hear him speaking a few podcasts back but all the winners for the annual Ambit competition get prize money and we pay our judges so it effectively funds itself but the first time in Ambit history we're dedicating a special edition to the winners of the poetry and publishing recommended work as well alongside the winners we won't bother with runners-up anymore because I'd like you to let us know what you like and what you don't it's ridiculously competitive to make the grade, only 1% make it through to the finishing line. And today we'll listen to some of the commended poets reading their work, littered with some music from Kim and some more spoken word music. And yes, we will be having a party in London around November the 1st and perhaps forward to the reaches of this island land. Okay, and then just uh, these sound beds on this show are created by Gilda Ray, who I have a band with, and our first recordings have just dropped on Dash Based Land in Berlin. And we play the Blang Records Night at the Hope and Anchor on October the 6th, and the Powerhouse in Camden on October the 7th, and maybe we'll throw in a bit of that later in the show. But another date for those in London is October the 2nd when we'll be doing a merch table at the Trunk Records Fair at the Mild May Social Club in Stoke Newington where Jarvis is DJing in the evening 
and there'll be a pop quiz hosted by the journalist Craig McLean and Johnny Trunk is celebrating 25 years in service to the rare grooves of soundtrack and he's a man of discernible taste and will be offering rare signed and exclusive work by Stanley Donwood who's perhaps best known for his work with Radiohead He created a work called Salaryman in praise of J.G. Ballard, our one-time fiction editor for a special prize. And we'll also include a subscription. These are only £20 for digital or £30 for full quarterlies a year plus postage. If you can't wait till then, order a subscription now via ambitmagazine.co.uk and we'll throw in an increasingly rare copy of 243, the edition, which was guest edited by Leah Saudi of the Fat White family, bringing in some of my personal favourite artists and writers working in and around the UK and Ireland today. Right, come to the pages, come, come, come through to the pages which have held everyone from Ivor Cutler to Linton Crazy Johnson. This is Ambit Radio with Soho Radio. Beats denied form um, and you read free verse but meters all over your work. Um, do you, you know, kind of how do you feel about kind of form and measuring and keeping the meter? Is it something that you kind of break down as you're doing it do you think about it when you're doing it do you kind of write with a structure do you just let it go well I love form or I love certain forms anyway you mm. know I, I love the 14 liner mm. the the sonnety thing and I've taught a number of sonnet workshops over the years you know I've just had a long and abiding love for the sonnet and in all its sort of forms, you know, from the very traditional to the much more exploded kinds of sonnets that contemporary writers are writing. Um, so, I, and I love, um, you know, what I tell my students is any formal constraint is going to pique your imagination because the imagination loves a problem and loves a limit and loves trying to figure out how to work within those limits or transgress them. So I love formal constraints of all kinds, whether that's a list poem where I'm tied to an anaphora and a repeated word or, um, or whether it's a sonnet and I'm just trying to do something in 14 lines or whether I'm trying to do a mono rhyme poem. There are a couple of mono rhyme poems in um, Now We're Getting Somewhere that what were really fun rhyme? to write. Tell, me, tell well, like, me what mono rhyme is, I don't know. Uh... Every, word, every word at the end of the line rhymes. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. yeah, so it's just one rhyme for 14 lines or for however many lines. And although sometimes, you know, something will morph a little bit and then it might move far from the original rhyme as it morphs through different iterations. But, um, you know, I just love that stuff. I just love words and love language. And it's just, I love playing with them and seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's good to enter competitions and kind of be a part of stuff because you end up, having a restriction as a journalist which is my training I mean you've always yeah if you've got a word count you know what you've got to hit you know how far you've got to go with it and yeah I mean I love a theme and I quite like boundaries certainly as an artist if you're doing anything I think kind of having a brief 
can be really useful because it stops it being you know quite so wide doesn't it so yeah, yeah I, I've done a number of essays where an editor has asked for an essay on something and I've written something I would not otherwise have written mm. and I've had a deadline and it always amazes me that journalists can continually work to deadlines, you know, because sometimes I can't guarantee, you know, somebody will say, well, you know, can we get a poem on X from you for this issue? Well, I don't really write about particular topics necessarily, but I'll I'll give it a crack, but I can't guarantee, I can't tell you I'm going to give you something because I don't know if it's going to turn out, you know, that's the thing. So, and if it doesn't turn out, I have to say, I'm sorry, not, not going to happen. I find poetry comes and goes. I really do as a, as an art, it'll be, I'll have, I'll have, you know, times when it's flowing, times when it's less flowing. And yeah, I mean, that thing of working on poetry, it's, uh, that's a whole other level of ed editing poetry and kind of taking it to that, taking it to that degree. But yeah, I mean, for me, poetry has always been about exploring language and, and allowing my fiction to get better, really. So to kind of experiment with language to make the fiction more interesting and read. Yeah, um, it's great training for a yeah. fiction writer Yeah, to study yeah. poetry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it messes things up, doesn't it? So kind of, so how have you found the form? So you have, so in front of it, you know, we have memoir, poetry and story here. So mm -hmm. do you want to talk a little bit about how you find they interlink? Um, I don't know how they interlink exactly, really. It's that if I'm working on poems, I'll pretty much just feed my head with poems and avoid most other reading because some, if I start reading essays that might trigger me and I might start to write an essay, but I really want to write some poems. You know, I'm in, I've been in the mode for a while where I just want to write poems and eventually I want to get back to writing some more essays. I've got a small handful after I wrote Bukowski and his sundress, I, I have written a handful more over the years. I really eventually want to do another book of essays, but I am first sort of want to get to a place with some new poems before I can really let the poetry go and go back to essays. And then when I do, I'll probably stop reading poetry and just read essays and really try to get that in my head and get myself triggered by something that's whether that's subject matter or style. And will you do more novels, do you think? Do you feel like no. you're doing that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I never want to write another novel. Uh, the two I've published were so much work, and I wrote a third that just, you know, was stillborn. And I just, I, I can't bear to write another novel unless something really smacks me upside the head and says, you need to do this, and I become obsessed. But I... I've published, written, I've written probably four and published two. And now I just want to write poems mostly and probably another book of essays. And occasionally I get out a story, but that they've been very few and far between. A couple short stories in the past few years. So yeah, I just, I really just feel like poetry is my heart and where I want to be. And you listen to that heart as well. You don't try to push it. I mean, I guess that's a poet's heart as well isn't that really of, of working on that form so yeah yeah did you used to hang out at city lights looking for answers 
I love City Lights. I, no, not really. I mean, when I first was in San Francisco, you know, there was a lot of activity around City Lights and Kerouac Alley and Spex was across the street, bar across the street, and Vesuvio's was across the alley. And, you know, and I remember a lot of time spent in North Beach, either at the bookstore or at the bars or at readings in various places, you know. Um, so it's it's a place that's very dear to my heart. Yeah. It's just that kind of how we find our, our ways into things, so, you know, and how sort of with Ambit, for example, it's where a lot of people are published for the first time. So it's a, it's kind of how how we find these things and what they what what they symbolize and what they kind of represent and how they help us, really, I think. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so these what I really liked about your novel as well about this one my dreams out in the street was that it's quite brave in the form I mean you took like 50 pages to write the first chapter and you're kind of giving faith in the reader to stick with you through that and I, I kind of enjoyed enjoyed that because you don't get that but you know it's usually so grabby like we were saying about kind of how people sort of use tricks to pull you through a story but I think you give quite a lot of uh, respect to your reader and you work do you edit hard how do you do it well that book took about 10 years to write with a lot of picking up picking it up putting it down at one point I'd shown it to a former professor of mine a fiction writer and I don't think he meant to be as discouraging as I experienced, <laughs> uh, but I, after his comments, I put it away for probably three years and thought, well, oh well. And it was actually the first novel that I really seriously tried to write. I wrote some piece of crap when I was, when my daughter was a baby, just because I think I had to write obsessively to feel like I still existed beyond taking care of this new infant you know um but and that was you know that was just awful but the my dreams was the book that i really um had a lot of investment in and and just felt very overwhelmed and crushed by the prospect of writing a novel and then got some feedback that didn't help much and then i think i had it in a drawer for about three years and then another writer i knew wanted me to look at his novel and i said well okay, I've got this thing in a drawer, you know, I'll read yours if you read mine, just to sort of tell me what you think. And he wrote back something very simple, but just said, I think there's real promise here. And one comment my professor had made, my former professor, this novelist said, I, I can't even remember what he said, but whatever he said, just gave me sort of enough courage to go on. And, um, and I began working on it again. And that wasn't the first time I put it away. I mean, that was the first time and it wasn't the last time I put it away, let's say that. So I still struggled a lot and rewrote a lot and gave up a lot over those 10 years. And finally, finally, I, I then I wrote this other novel, Little Beauties, that ended up being published as my first novel. And I wrote that very quickly. I, it wasn't easy, but I wrote it rather quickly and it was taken. And it's lighter, it's more of a comedy. 
and once that was taken, I had the courage to go back yet again to, to my dreams out in the street and kind of work on it again and then gave it to my agent. And he gave me some feedback and I worked on it again. And then we gave it to the editor and she gave me some feedback and I worked on it for another God knows how long. So it went through a lot, a lot of editing and rewriting before it finally came out. Mm. And, um, you know, so it, it's a book that I'm proud of. I'm, I'm really proud of that book because I, I struggled so hard to get it written and to get it as right as I could make it get it into the world for whoever might see it so mm, yeah it's great and so how do you find that is how do you find that impacts you in the feedback that you give to people from your experience are you encouraging as a tutor do you whip people down kind of how do you how do you manage other people's emotions I um I try to balance it's all balance again you know but I I really don't want to shut anyone down. So I am encouraging. I'm often saying, I love this or I love that. You know, I try to give them a lot of positive feedback um, because I know how much more you can go forward on something positive than something negative, you know. But at the same time, we're all, I'm also trying to teach them some things that I see are not working in their writing and trying to show them that so that they can improve their work. And it's always a balance, you know, and I try to meet students where they are. And it's, I don't always get it right, but I do have a number of returning students. So I feel like somebody once said, you serve the people you're meant to serve as a teacher. And so I feel that the people that can be served by me find their way to me and get something valuable. And if they don't, you know, they my workshops usually five weeks, they take a workshop and then they go, oh, okay. And then they go elsewhere and they find a different teacher who offers them more of whatever they need. So, I mean, I've been told that I'm hard on my students, but they seem to also really appreciate that I'm leaning in and not phoning it in which some writers tend to do. It's, it's, criti- it's the kind of critical culture, isn't it? It's where we can be critical without causing offence. And we're in such a sensitive point in history for offence and that being kind of laboured against us. Yeah, I was kind of wondering how you handle that, you know, with trigger warnings. I've been reading books with trigger warnings on for the first time ever. And I just kind of don't know don't know how to handle that really because literature to me is something that is a trigger warning in itself and you're choosing to go in so um yeah just the sensitivity of other people it's like it's so so phenomenal um and of course that you know kind of lead with kindness but yeah i find it find it quite tough to i'm i'm critical um because I've got quite high standards so yeah but it's just like yeah. kind of how you how you communicate that yeah yeah it's a very thorny subject <laughs> yeah. you know it's it's really hard to navigate mm. in terms of what you know there's god I, I it's just even so hard to say anything about it I've had these discussions with a number of people and sort of tried to navigate my own way through it and and I think that kindness is one of the things about it you know kindness and listening and yet at the same time you know there is a part of me that says you know that resists that 
and says, well, I, this is what I'm going to write. And if it offends you, I've listened, I've thought about your position. And then I'm either, you know, I'm, I'm going to make my decision based on, on my own sense of that after that you know, after I really consider things. So, you know, if I do something, if I write something that's controversial, I'm going to consider the impact, but I'm not necessarily going to let it to control what I'm doing. It just, it really depends on what it is and, and how I'm, you know, how the other people person is responding, what they're responding to or triggered by or not. Um, I know that one, um, one friend who teaches at a, well-regarded institution uh, had a student tell her that her trigger word was mother. That's a little far for me, <laughs> you know, but there's a whole spectrum, right? That's one side of the spectrum. The other side is that we are in a cultural moment and a lot of voices that have been silenced are, are speaking up and trying to make their way and they're pushing the envelope and we need that. We need to push the envelope and we need to be pushed and we need to really examine our, our assumptions. And so I, it's, it is that, you know, it's, it's the, and there are extremes on both sides and there's a lot of, there's a lot of cancel culture on the right and there's a lot of cancel culture on the far left and, and that is all happening. And so how do we all navigate that? It's very tricky stuff. Mm. And I've, I've definitely fallen on both sides of the argument. I, I think it really depends on the situation. And I have fallen on both sides of the argument for, yeah, I think this person is right. I've been, I've been too insensitive or I've been too something, you know, and on the other hand, no, I don't agree with this person after thinking about it. I really, I'm coming to a different conclusion, but I've really examined my premises and I've decided, okay, fine. I am going to plant my flag here. And, you know, so I've gone between those two, depending on what the situation is. Yeah, it's just kind of like the whole representation of anything in literature has just got, uh, it, it all gets contextualized within the current dynamic rather than right. necessarily kind of how it may have happened originally, I think. So it's it's kind of, we need to always understand context, I think is the is the most important thing. And there needs to be sort of an understanding of what that context is, why things are said and how they're articulated really. This pop edition is gonna be great. It's uh, gonna change the format a little bit and the design is really great. So yeah, to, it's, it's fun really to, to give people the opportunity to get published, I guess, so yeah. Yeah, when, when is this issue coming out? End of October, beginning of November. Yeah, and we'll get you some copies of it. Yeah. Um, what advice do you give to writers? Um, usually it's just to keep going. <laughs> you know, it's, it's easy to give up the first time you hit a wall or the first time you realize that what you're trying to do is harder than you thought it might be. And um, that's, you know, a lot of people give up at that stage. And it's the people who really keep going, who, who get anywhere. Tenacity, I think, as a writer, yeah. And, and what are you reading at the moment that you're enjoying? Mostly I've just been dipping into a lot of different poems. And then I have been slowly reading one nonfiction book, which is Martha Gellhorn's The Face of War which is really beautifully written. You know, she was married to Hemingway, which is probably how most people know her name 
journalist, um, but she was everywhere. I mean, she just, you know, she was in, she was at the Battle of the Bulge. She was one of the ships that went in at Normandy, the first hospital ship. She went aboard. She was just everywhere that things were happening, terrible things were happening. And she writes about them beautifully. And so I, that's just what I've been reading that that's not going to trigger me to write something else. <laughs> you know, there's not going to be something I have to worry about taking me away right now from poetry. Are you working on a book then at the moment, a new book of poetry? Have you commissioned to do that? Yeah. There, there aren't really commissions. It's just, mm. you know, you write and you write. And then eventually, if, mm. you, if I have a book or close to a book, then I'll start thinking about sending it to my agent. But I, I'm just working on poems. I haven't reached the point where I'm quite working on a new book. But I just came up with a title, which I'm not going to share because I'm very su superstitious about titles. But I just had an idea for a title. And usually that comes really late in the process. But yeah, I guess on some level, I'm writing another book. I just don't want to admit it to myself yet. Mm -hmm. Put that pressure on myself. Mm -hmm. And how do you write? Do you do it? Do you sit at your desk? Do you just do it when you're living your daily life? Do you put a lot of hours in? Do you recommend people put hours into writing? Or It changes a lot. It, it changes. I haven't been writing much and I'm I'm really desperate to get back to some writing days and I just haven't had them. Life has been too full of change and, you know, mostly good stuff, but some tough stuff too. And I just have not been able to make the space for writing, but generally, yeah, having some kind of a regular time carved out for it is really, really helpful for me as well as uh, I think for everybody, because yeah. otherwise the time just fills up with life mm -hmm. yeah entirely yeah yeah and and then I mean the other thing I just wanted to discuss I mean it kind of on the cover of this book you're drinking wine and you kind of have this impression of being quite rock and roll and quite quite wild do you want to talk about that a little bit I guess it's just you know an aspect of myself and I'm I'm often surprised that people think it's something edgy or brave and I don't really see it that way. So it's hard for me to, hard for me to really get what people are thinking, you know? I mean, I see that they're thinking that and sometimes I'll play with that persona just to go, yeah, so, <laughs> you know, you wanna call me the drinking poet then I'll put myself on the cover drinking. <laughs> You know, that was actually my publisher that decided to do that. That was going to be my author photo. I sent it to them and they said, we really like this. Let's put it on the cover, you know. Um, but yeah, so I think I have played with that persona and as well as often felt that don't these people watch cable TV? Why do they think this is so weird and edgy? I mean, you know watch cable watch it all these incredible shows you know from deadwood to the sopranos to a million other shows that are that have plenty of stuff in them that for some reason people don't think belongs in especially poetry and i'm just like what are you talking about poetry is about life so i have to say what i see in life and what i'm experiencing and and i don't really understand that whole concept you know mm. I mean I guess I, I understand it because I hear it a lot from other people but I, I don't quite understand how that many people in the world can be so clueless about what life really is 
so to me it's light and dark and and um both things are equally important you know I think it's super punk what you do. I mean, it reminds me of Viv Albertine and boys, 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 clothes, 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 music, music, music. It kind of, there's a an honesty that she has there about sleeping around. I think it's rare, you know, Virginia dispensers. There's, there's not that many women that I know of that, yeah. And I can't wait to sort of get some new culture going on without nepotism and cronyism and trying to get teaching gigs at different places and all the dirty dirty sort of sub poet nonsense that goes on yeah yeah do you when's your novel when's your novel coming out oh it's out it's out oh um it's it's just out i'll show you it it's really beautiful it's uh it's a beautiful thing it's um yeah here it is oh nice yeah what's it called psychomachia psychomachia yeah it's from a poem um a a fifth century poem really yeah about the war of vice and virtue and it's i found it in the british library as a manuscript and I did my own really bad translation. I'm a specialist in really non-scholarly translations mm-hmm. of, uh, of using, um, yeah, of using dictionaries and instinct to sort of create something. It doesn't matter if it's not correct for me really, but I'll use a, I'll use a trans, I'll use, you know, an official translation as well and sort of balance it all out. But uh yeah so there's a track it's called the war of the soul it's so beautiful and i mean all the language in it luxuria (laughs) flower shod and swaying from the wine cup every fragrance it's so beautiful beautiful yeah Yeah. it is it's it's stunning and it's just all the it's it's yeah it's 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 like this mad mad poem just about all the different idol tree um chastity and all these fights going on and kind of getting at each other it's, it's beautiful it's really mm-hmm. great um, wow yeah it's kind of it's just the perfect metaphor for the novel that's set in the music industry and the fashion industry in the 90s so yeah yeah it's 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 you know it's a perfect way of because uh, it's a feminist sort of story within yeah within that world so yeah fabulous well congratulations yeah Yeah, and that's your first novel yeah yeah I mean it's taken me it's taken me forever to get it right um yeah and to get it published and find a publisher who's um brave enough to to take that risk really yeah 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 but yeah it's I didn't want to go half measures on it so yeah I'm glad it's taken so long yeah and I'm proud of it so yeah yeah and I'm getting and it is that thing of just having people you know and people you don't sort of get in touch and get touched by it and yeah absolutely yeah believe in it yeah beautiful yeah yeah Yeah. and give people my first fiction was published in Ambit so I know the old editors from when it started and it just gave me a place where I felt like I belonged and kind of was looked after and it was quite family so I just want to extend that out to new writers really wherever possible so yeah 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 Yeah. great great
all right and i'll um yeah i'll play some on the show so yeah all right have a great haircut awesome yeah yeah Yeah. uh, great to talk to you yeah you too i really cannot tell you how great it is to find a woman writing as perfectly as i found you do so (laughs) thank you that's that's lovely to hear i I mean it you know it's uh praise not often given so yeah yeah all right (laughs) all right beautiful okay all right (laughs) all right christy well i look forward to hearing the podcast and seeing some of the stuff so right um great all right thank you kim adonisio thank you all right (laughs) bye all right ciao Right, so thanks deeply to Kim Adonizio for guesting with us today and also judging the competition for Amber. So I just, before we run out of time, I just wanted to say that I saw a preview of a film that's screening in London on September the 29th about Oliver Sacks, and I'd really recommend you try and see it. You might think it's all been done before and... Uh, He'll definitely prove that to you as he moves alone to Topanga Canyon, gets into drugs. By 1962, he's doing heavy weights and with a mother disappointed he wasn't into girls, he gets into milkshakes, motorcycle speed and weights. And it's basically a flyer for a memoir by Oliver Sacks, who's equal writer and a shrink he's a a rare 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 breed who reminds me of our own founding father here at ambit dr martin Bax, who worked as a pediatrician that funded the magazine initially and introduced him to the printers and all of that Sachs did so much amazing research in trialing L-dopa, dopamine into people who'd been in this old pandemic of being in a sleep state but he got a kind of form of graphomania of just writing and writing and writing and writing and there's some brilliant, brilliant, brilliant subtle points to this film so yeah, I'd recommend finding the man who mistook his wife for a hat and other stories. I first saw my analyst of 66. We are now in our 50th year and we're beginning to get somewhere. Please welcome Dr. Oliver Sacks. He was the first major intellectual who spoke about diseases to the general public in a way that they could understand. His writing brought back a central aspect of medicine treat the person and not the disease. Life threw so many things at him, some of which he brought on himself. He was the first to admit. It was at that time they discovered that he was gay. Where do you go where your mother calls you an abomination? You go to San Francisco and stop writing home. From an early age, it was understood that I was going to be a doctor. My brother Michael was diagnosed as schizophrenic. I became terrified for him. Michael was one of the reasons Oliver did what he did. Much of my life has been spent trying to imagine what it's like to be another human being. His great gift was storytelling about the human condition in a medical context. 
emphasizing the fact that they saw the world in different ways. You would tell these stories so well that people who are brave, lonely, and left out are storied back into the world. Oliver was absolutely dismissed by fellow neurologists. He had his critics. For someone to say that he exploited his patients, I think that's absolutely wrong. Are you a doctor first and then a writer? The real answer is that I'm both, and in important ways they lend together. Oliver never lost that sense of wonder. Ten days before he died, he was writing. I don't tell you what I think of. <laughs> People think he's saying, look at the others. He's not saying that. He's saying, look at us. Wasteland, which is called Berlin Volume 1 and 2 and it's a double edition vinyl. The first track we'll hear is History's Children featuring Rob Doyle with music by St. Leonard. The second is Vagrant Lovers which is my band Doors of Then. It features the wonderful Anton Newcomb remixing Tim Burgess. And then Wild Wild Wedding is a song written by Martin Kudeka. visited Linda at her flat in the high-rise in Lichtenberg. She cooked pumpkin soup while I reclined in the hammock that bisected the living room at an angle, rolling one skinners for Linda to smoke in the narrow kitchen while she told me stories about her travels and love affairs. To me, Linda embodied all that was vital and underground in Berlin. When I thought of Berlin, I thought of it as the city where Linda lived. But now she was thinking about moving away. At least, she'd had enough of the winters. I want to go where there are hammocks out of doors, she said. Tenerife, I said, before licking a cigarette paper. Maybe Kosamui for the trans parties. But actually, I want to go to Mexico. The place I want to go is Kyoto, though I like dreaming of it as much as I'd enjoy being there. 
They have temples, cherry blossoms, poems about the moon. Even in Kyoto, hearing a cuckoo's cry, I long for Kyoto, she said. Drawing on a fresh joint, she told me she'd finally got round to reading my books. She said she found my writing brave. I shifted in the hammock and replied that it made me uneasy whenever someone described my stuff as brave. It made me think I'd humiliated myself in ways I hadn't quite intended. She asked me what I was working on, and when I told her, she wondered if I ever felt I was living a certain way only so that I could write about it. If Linda's phone hadn't rung just then, I might have told her that the time when I could have understood such a question had passed, that I had long since solved the problem of authenticity, of making existence adhere to itself. I might have told her that my life was the research for the book I was writing about my life, and that this book, which was many books, would justify that life. Linda might then have smiled sadly and concluded that writing was a symptom of the sickness for which it was also the cure. Instead, she told me a story in which she decided to have a child with a man in India before realizing, at a point when it might well have been too late, that this was imperfectly wise. The story surprised me in that I had always viewed Linda's commitment to childlessness as an inviolable element of her nature. This had intrigued me when we first met in South America. Moreover, I could relate. The difference was that, whereas Linda was concerned with political issues and worried about the direction society was taking, these days I appraised myself to be not only childless, but childish. That is, I lived like a child, concerned exclusively with novelty and selfish delight, relating even to geopolitics and the prospect of planetary catastrophe as modes of entertainment. Sometimes I judged myself brutally for this, but even the self-reproach seemed a kind of decadence, an exquisite late capitalist masochism. More often, I gave myself over to pleasure with ease of conscience, enjoying the spectral glow of what felt, on so many nights, like the twilight of a jaded civilization. I seemed to myself nakedly symptomatic of a general decline. When an epoch started tolerating the likes of me, you knew the game was over. It was nice to live like a child, though. Better than it was to live as a man. Being a man was a grim slog of duty and sacrifice and repressed desire. Men had built European civilization, driven its expansionist phase, and now it fell to us, history's children, to squander it.
are, this frame of mercy. 